This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. In the early morning hours of November 8, 1992, 19-year-old nursing student Michelle Lawless was found dead just outside Benton, Missouri, on the side of Interstate 70. Investigators claimed the evidence suggested Michelle had fought for her life, ran from her attacker, and was pursued and caught before being returned to her car, where she was shot three times. After questioning Michelle's boyfriends and friends, the case went cold until April 7th of 1993, when 17-year-old Joshua Kaiser was arrested and charged with the murder of Michelle Lawless. Kaiser's arrest was based on information provided to police by jailhouse informants and supporting testimony of a witness who claimed to have seen Michelle and Josh arguing at a party the night of her murder, as well as another witness who placed Kaiser at the scene of the crime. Despite the lack of physical evidence and the questionable credibility of the witnesses and informants, Joshua Kaiser was found guilty of second-degree murder, and he was sentenced to 60 years in prison. However, 16 years later, Joshua Kaiser was exonerated after witnesses came forward claiming he had not been at the party, and it was discovered that the eyewitness placing Kaiser at the scene had changed his account of that evening multiple times. Kaiser sued for wrongful conviction, being awarded $4 million, 10000 of which he donated to the Scott County Sheriff's Office to be used to find the real killer of Michelle Lawless. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Crime Weekly. I'm Stephanie Harlow. And I'm Derek Lavasser. So I, well, actually, before we dive into everything that we're going to talk about tonight, because this is a very interesting and timely case, Derek wants to make sure that I talk about Criminal Coffee merch, because we have new merch. You know how bad that sounds when you say that? <laughs> do you honestly know? It's like, you do know, you do know this is like your company, right? Yeah, it is. But like, you also know I'm forgetful. And so you have to remind me. Yeah, but it's like, oh, Derek's forcing me to talk about also, this I would like to talk about I it. I would like to talk about it because... I basically like created this. Well, I didn't create. Like I don't know, I know. what to say. Oh, poor you to what, talk about. What do a... I say? Like how I spearheaded this launch. Yeah, I said, hey, listen, this is going to be a more female geared uh, clothing line. This, this, female this geared gear. Gear, <laughs> and you know, why don't you just kind of do your thing? Like you know what you like, and I think our our the people who follow us would like that too. Why have me kind of spearhead that when you're more in tune with what? women are going to want to wear so where so wear um <laughs> wear so uh so yeah that's kind of where i know it's i know it's like a big crazy thing but yeah this is your kind of your baby so i figured you might want to mention it because it's been available now for a week and we haven't said it anywhere okay so i'm really excited about it actually <laughs> okay. because i dress in layers a lot because my temperature is constantly changing <laughs> like my mood <laughs> and 
<laughs> Are you laughing? I can't see. Did you give a laugh? Did you give a giggle? Did I get something? Yeah. Yeah, I'm here. You're so sick of me. You're so sick of me. You're like you're so Derek sick of, wanted to make sure. It's like, you're just oh. going to leave me behind. Derek, leave her. Anyways, I wanted layers. So I wanted, um, you know, some T-shirts and some tank tops because we don't have any tank tops because I always have a tank top on underneath like a sweatshirt, underneath the zip up. And I wanted to zip up because we have pullovers and we have hoodies and things already in the merch store, but we never had a zip up. And I love a zip up. I love it with all my heart. So we have cropped t-shirts. We have cropped tank tops. We got regular tank tops and we have bomb ass fleece full zip hoodies. Now the tank tops and the t-shirt are definitely like more female oriented. However, the the zip up is unisex. So yay. And listen, the colors are amazing. Like I cannot wait. I want every single color in the cropped tee. I want two of the colors in the um, cropped tank top. Uh, the fleece zip up comes in that amazing like heathered oatmeal color that everybody loves in the pullover. And it also comes in this like bomb maroon or like plum color. So I definitely am both of those. It comes in black as well. And yeah, they're awesome. I'm super proud of them. I think they look so cool. I love the design. I love that on the zip up, it's kind of like the smaller criminal coffee um, on the chest, but then the, the cool fingerprint coffee bean is on the arm, which is exactly how I wanted it. And it's super cute. I love, I love it. I love it. it and it's on the t-shirt too, on the cropped t-shirt. I want every color in this crab t-shirt. There's a, a coffee bean fingerprint on the arm. And I'm actually going to have to talk to um, JNR and make sure that they send me all of the things that I want before this even goes live. Because I feel like as soon as people see these cropped tees and these like z- these hoodies, these zip up hoodies, the, all the colors and sizes I want are going to be gone. So I need to make sure. I need to make sure I get mine. Mm-hmm. Okay. There we go. Yeah. Oh, so go to Criminal Coffee co.com hit the merch tab check it out all right but make sure you leave some for me i'm really worried and concerned about this thank you you're welcome dad all right so michelle lawless i chose to cover this case on crime weekly at this moment even though i've been following it for about a year because just last month uh july 2023 a special prosecutor has been officially assigned to take another look at the murder of michelle lawless which is a crime that Joshua Kazer has spent 16 years in prison for before being exonerated in 2009. And this obviously left a big question mark about who actually took Michelle's life. And I will say I spoke to Josh on the phone. Today's Monday. Technically, it's Tuesday because it's after midnight. I spoke to him Sunday, I think, for over four hours. We talked on the phone. So I yeah, have I was literally trying better. to call you like. Yeah, I was like, I can't I can't answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then he called me and then hung up and then called me and back three freaking times in a row. And I was like, who is this well, person? That's a different that story. He... That's a different story. And I want Stephanie doesn't know how to use a phone. It's 2023. She doesn't know how to use a phone. She has like some type of do not disturb thing on because I have to call her twice every time I call her because the first time I call her because of some setting in her phone. By the way, Stephanie, horrible at technology absolutely horrible just just doesn't get it and for some she's adamant about the fact that her phone doesn't have me on do not disturb or whatever it doesn't but in fact i found out that this is everybody who calls me yeah everybody who calls stephanie you have to call her once not do not disturb i don't know what it is i don't know what it is feature but you call her and it automatically goes to voicemail and you have to call back within like five seconds and then it goes through i kind of like it because it's great for us too it lets you know like if you really want to talk to me, like you'll find a way to get through. Yeah, you just gotta and call if you're just call, times. if you're just calling to chat, then it won't go through, which is fine because I, I don't like to chat. Don't like to chat. No chit chat. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just, I'm just texting from now on. Don't do that. Okay, so yeah, I talked to him on the phone for over four hours. It was a great conversation. I have a better understanding of Josh. I have a better understanding of the case. I mean, like, to put yourself in the shoes of somebody who went to prison for 16 years at the age of 17, by the way, the age of 17, went to prison for a murder that he knew the whole time he didn't commit. And I mean, honestly, this he should have never, ever have even been arrested or put on trial for this crime as we're going to talk about. But I just don't know how you walk away with only four million. Like, shouldn't right. it be a million for every year? I mean, even that I mean, doesn't quantify for the time lost. But just to say, like, I mean, 16, so would you say 16, 17 years? I don't think any amount of money, 16, I don't think any I, amount I of money can, but can how does, cover how, how, how do you years. How do you quantify 17 years at $4 million? I don't know Half how you do Half of which that. they probably take in taxes, by the way. Would you, no, in civil, I don't know if you'd pay taxes on a civil. I don't know. Yeah, I don't, th- I don't know. Well, you'd pay federal taxes still, wouldn't you? I don't know. I don't well, know I'm going to ask him that. That's a question we didn't talk about in the five hours we I spoke. I know with like <laughs> certain things like, uh, it's kind of off topic here, but I know with like if you receive like a inheritance- I don't know if you pay. I don't think you pay on that. Oh, the government's definitely trying to institute an inheritance tax. But I would think if you win a civil lawsuit, you wouldn't have to pay taxes on that. It's not income. You, I don't know. That's a great. You probably question. shouldn't. You probably should not have to pay. Um, but but I agree. Four million is peanuts compared peanuts. to the the loss of sixteen years of. And it's not like he was like in his forties. Right. When he went, he, oh, he yeah, was lost. 17. This is the prime of his life. This is the time, 16 years when you should be starting a family, having children, going to college, starting your career. Right. So, yeah. yeah his entire foundation was taken from him. Ridiculous. Yeah. And you you can hear it and you can see that and be like, and, and you know, it's really, you can put yourself in their shoes or try to and be like, wow, that's yeah. horrible. But you really have to talk to somebody to understand how how it's just awful and just a quick disclaimer for this episode because you had given me a little bit of a heads up what we were looking at and that josh was a big uh, factor or contributor to this case to help you get the full picture Mm -hmm. and and i'm sure josh will listen or watch this and just so he knows and you guys know obviously he's been exonerated so he's an Mm -hmm. innocent man period however i'm going to look at the case from the perspective of uh, how did law enforcement even get here? Was it a completely egregious? And I know, but it's, you know, reserve judgment. Again, <laughs> again, I don't know the script, uh, but it's one of those things where I'm going to be looking at it to try to understand how we got there. And it might just be very obvious that we shouldn't have got there, but I'm just looking at it from that perspective for you guys, as well as myself to understand how they initially got there, how egregious really was it? And then where they maybe should have focused their attention and how, how this should have been done differently. So that's going to be my perspective on it and, and just kind of following it from that angle because, as you mentioned, he was arrested, charged, and convicted of this crime at one I point. know. It's crazy. So it's I like, want to see it's how we got there. It's like on a level of 1 to 10 of egregiousness, 150. Great. So there I, were, lit- I don't understand. Like, And I've seen some, right, we've talked about, we've and we've talked about these cases, and there's usually a lot of gray areas. I don't understand this. I don't understand it at all. It's tragic. So Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to diving into it. I mean, it's probably going to become very obvious quickly, but mm-hmm. we'll see where it goes. We're covering the basics, crime scene, the today. setup today. Yep. yep. 
But during the trial, Joshua Kaiser's defense team had presented multiple alibi witnesses who confirmed that he hadn't even been in the same town. He was hundreds of miles away from the scene of the crime. There was zero physical evidence tying him to Michelle's murder. He'd never even met her, yet he was still convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to 60 years in prison, even though the main case against him was built by these jailhouse informants and an eyewitness whose own involvement in the crime has been questionable, considering that this eyewitness was kind of initially considered a suspect, considering this eyewitness was the one who found Michelle's body and who changed their story, I believe, five times, whose stories never made sense, whose stories never added up. In all honesty, the entire investigation was completely bungled. The trial was a witch hunt during which it has been proven that documents withheld from Kaiser and his legal team could have changed the outcome of the trial. What do they call that? A Brady violation? Yeah, we've heard that before. Yeah. And Josh Kaiser, who was only 17 when Michelle was murdered, should never have been arrested and charged with the murder of a woman he had never even met. They can never prove that he met. As always, we're going to go through the case piece by piece. We're going to do a a true crime weekly deep dive and in the end hope that the true killer of Michelle Lawless is brought to justice now that a new set of eyes is on the case. But honestly, hoping for any kind of justice in this case seems to be, uh, you know, hoping for a fairy tale at this point. Benton is a very small town in Scott County, Missouri, with a population of just over 2,000 people. But when Angela Michelle Lawless lived and died there just three months before her 20th birthday, there were only 600 residents who called Benton home. Angela, who went by her middle name Michelle, was born on August 2nd, 1973, to her parents Marvin James Lawless and Esther Lavera Lawless. She had two siblings, both younger than herself a 15-year-old brother, Jason, and 12-year-old sister, Valerie. Michelle had graduated from Kelly High School the year before her death, and she had just started her first year as a nursing student at Southeast Missouri State University located in Cape Girardeau, a neighboring town about 18 miles away from Benton. Michelle worked part-time as a waitress at a place called Shoney's in Sykeston, another neighboring town, and at the time of her death, she lived at home. However, Michelle had attempted to spread her wings and explore some independence for a short time during her first semester when she and a female friend shared a trailer together in Sykeston. And I'm going to talk about this very short-lived period of Michelle's life in a moment. Now, it seemed that throughout high school, Michelle had been a very good kid. She sang in the school chorus. She was a Girl Scout. She was active in school organizations like Future Homemakers of America and Students Against Drunk Driving. From a young age, Michelle had known she had wanted to be a nurse, and during high school, she had volunteered as a candy striper at St. Francis's Medical Center in Cape Girardeau. However, when she hit college, as many teens do, Michelle began to branch out a bit, test the waters of her rebelliousness. Michelle had started to write daily in a diary, with entries beginning on January 1st, 1992. Her first day of college was August 23rd, 1992, and she wrote about normal college experiences, like making new friends, some of them boys, and attending fraternity and motel parties where there was alcohol present. Michelle also wrote a lot about cruising with her friends, and I think we talked about this in a previous case, but uh, cruising— Yeah, another meaning for it. Yeah, it just means driving around. Driving around, no destination in mind, just driving around, having fun. You had a different interpretation of cruising. I did. I did. Well, I didn't have an... That's all... That's what I thought it was. Okay. So this seems to be like more of a thing that people did in the 80s and 90s, like cruising around with their friends together. I don't know if people... You never cruised around? 
You never like got in a car with your your, your people and just kind of like seen what was going on in the area, like just driving around. No, I never really had people. <laughs> I'm not gonna say anything. <laughs> All right. I've always been a a, a little bit of a loner. <laughs> She's like, I'm like, you never went out with your friends? No. I uh, what yeah. friends? I I like my own company. <laughs> Okay. But no, I definitely, and my mom was so strict, man. To think that she would let me go in a car and just drive around with my friends is bananas. Crazy. I wonder if that's why I was such a loner. What <laughs> <laughs> oh, you think? Like, I had a lot of uh, imaginary friends, mm. but. Still do. Damn. I'm going to call my mom and be like, you messed me up. <laughs> you never let me cruise. <laughs> you were overprotective. <laughs> why couldn't I cruise? <laughs> so she uh, she's out cruising a lot with her friends. And during one of these cruising episodes, she and her best friend, Lilisha, who worked with her at the restaurant Shoney's, they spotted a trailer for rent in Sykeston. On October 15th, 1992, the two friends put a deposit down on the trailer and they began to move in. But it was not meant to be, as Lilisha only spent one night there before claiming to be homesick and moving out. So for a short time, Michelle tried to live in the trailer alone, but she would also be back at her parents' house within two weeks. A week later, Michelle would be dead. Her bright and hopeful life cut short for seemingly no reason because no one could figure out why anyone would want to hurt a young woman who apparently never had a crossword for anyone and who was only ever sweet and kind and giving. I mean, she's 19 years old. How many enemies could she have made by that point? And this is also, uh, like I said, a very small town. People aren't just murdering each other left and right in Benton. So it was very confusing and very shocking to the community. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it happens a lot in these small town communities where something like this really rocks the entire the entire town because everyone knows everyone or it's like a, you know, the Kevin Bacon game. Have you ever heard of that? Where it's like one oh, yeah. connection to each seven, person. Seven degrees. I yeah, think. seven degrees. Yeah. So, but even in a small town like that, like even in a small state like Rhode Island, it's everyone knows everyone. It's funny. I was just I was just talking to someone who was on Big Brother. They just moved to Rhode Island, and he was like, "Yeah, I was out last week." And it's like every time I go out, people are like, "I saw Derek at a grocery store or whatever." And it's like he, he's like, "It happens to me religiously." I'm like, "That's Rhode Island for you." It's just everyone knows someone who knows that person, whether it's a a good thing or a bad thing. There's usually some connection to to it where. I can only imagine how it it would be in a smaller town like that where you got a couple thousand people living there. Everyone knows each other's business. Dude, that's so bizarre to me that like you go out and people see you and like know who you are. Yeah, but it's not so. I mean, by the way, real quick, super quick was in Nashville. Shout out to all the Crime Weekly people who came up and said hi to me on uh, Broadway. And yeah, all I'm that. sure you saw Derek at his best. I was I was in rough shape. It was a bachelor party, <laughs> but I was always nice. And shout out if you if you were one of those people I saw. Say hi in the comments. But it was actually really cool. Everyone was great. If you have um, incriminating pictures, videos, please don't share them publicly, but do send them to me. Let's hope you, Yeah, great. All right, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Early on the morning of November 8th, 1992, Jerry and Ruth Householder were driving home from the Double Nickel Nightclub in Minor. It was around 1.15 a.m. when they pulled off Interstate 55 at Exit 60, going towards Benton, Missouri, when they spotted a 1989 maroon two-door Buick Somerset parked in the right turn lane of the exit ramp. From their vantage point, the householders could not see if anyone was inside the car, but they thought it was odd that the car was running. And not only were the headlights on, but the dome light inside of the vehicle was also on. Ruth and Jerry could not see anyone else in the vicinity, but when Jerry asked if he should get out and have a look, Ruth told him she would feel better if he didn't. Instead, they would drive to the sheriff's office in Benton, which was just about two miles away, and report what they had seen. There was a skeleton crew working at the station that morning. It was just Deputy Jim Newman, who was on dispatch, and Deputy Wes Drury, who was the county jailer. However, there were two more police officers present when the householders arrived at around 1.25 a.m. And although they were not officially on duty, Reserve Deputy Rick Walter and part-time Benton police officer Roy Moore were finishing up paperwork after their shifts. Ruth Householder told Newman on dispatch what she and her husband had seen, and Walter and Moore volunteered to go out and have a look so that Newman didn't have to call anyone at home and wake them up to check out the abandoned car sitting mysteriously on the exit ramp. Driving in Rick Walter's personal vehicle, he and Moore approached the vehicle and, just like the householders, saw no one in the area. No suspicious vehicles, no suspicious activity. Walter pulled up to the Buick and parked in front of it, facing the car, headlights to headlights. He would later report that Michelle's car was parked far enough back from the stop sign that he had space to park in front of her car without being in the way of any potential traffic. While he radioed dispatch to let Newman know that they had arrived, Roy Moore approached the driver's side of the car on foot, quickly realizing that the situation was far more nefarious than anyone could have imagined. Moore yelled out to Walter that he could see someone inside the car. He thought it was a woman, and he thought that she was hurt. This woman was Michelle Lawless, but Walter and Moore didn't know that yet. As Walter left his vehicle and approached the passenger side of the car, Moore tried the driver's door. He found it unlocked and reached in to check the pulse of the body of the young woman who was draped across the center console of her car. Michelle was laying on her right side, her legs in the driver's seat pulled up into her chest as if in a fetal position. Her head was on the passenger seat situated partly on her purse. Her left arm dangled lifelessly to the floorboard of the passenger seat side, and her right arm was beneath her torso. She seemed to be in disarray, dressed in a sweatshirt and jeans with a button fly. So a button fly means instead of a zipper, there's just all buttons going all the way down. And the top four buttons were unfastened. The jeans also appeared to have been ripped or torn, exposing the back of her left leg. She had no shoes on, and the bottom of her socks were covered in grass and dirt. But more shocking than anything else was the amount of blood that covered her head and face. When Moore checked for a pulse, 
he could find none, but he did say later that Michelle's skin was warm and clammy. The passenger side door was locked and the window was rolled all the way up. The driver's side door had been unlocked and the window was partially rolled down. So as Roy Moore rushed back to the car to call for backup, Rick Walter went around the car to the driver's side, reached in, and turned the car's engine off. And then he used the keys to unlock the car from the passenger side. Giving a quick survey of the car interior, Walter spotted a spent shell casing on the driver's side seat under Michelle's left upper leg. A second spent shell casing was found on the passenger side. Using flashlights, Walter and Moore began scanning the area around the Buick, trying to see if there was anyone hiding in the bushes or the brush on the side of the highway. But instead, they found copious amounts of blood. There was blood on the hood of Michelle's car. There was a puddle of blood about six inches in diameter on the pavement next to the car, roughly a foot away from the left front tire. And there was a trail of blood going over the exit ramp guardrail, as well as blood covering the grass leading down the embankment on the other side of the guardrail. Back at the Scotts County Sheriff's Office, a tall young man wearing a dark shirt entered and approached the jailer, Russ Drury, who was on the phone calling an ambulance to the scene of Michelle's vehicle. Drury recognized the man as being one of the Abbott twins, whose parents owned and operated Store 24, which was a 24-hour convenience store and a gas station next to the interstate in Scott City. And apparently Drury recognized one of these Abbott boys because he knew that both Mark and Matt Abbott, who were twins, worked at their parents' convenience store. And Drury, along with many other local police officers, would often hang out at this place. I mean, even in a larger city like where I live, there are very few places that are open 24-7. We know that cops are on duty 24-7. There always has to be somebody on duty when you're a police officer. And so it's probably a good place to gather to get coffee, to grab drinks, to just, you know, stop and chat if you're out on patrol, if there's a 24-hour convenience store around. And this was probably the only one. They probably had good donuts, too. I don't know about that. That was a joke. but That's very, I don't know, prejudice against cops. Yep. I hate cops. I love donuts. <laughs> I'm not a cop. Donuts are great. So, you know, um, we often kind of see in in this case that Mark and Matt Abbott are identical twins, right? But Drury said, and many other people said, they could tell them apart. If they were together and in person, they could tell these two men apart. One person that we're going to talk about more next episode said he could tell them apart by the way they walked. The, you, obviously, like I have twins who are identical cousins, Justin and Sean, shout out. But I know for a fact, especially when they're together, I can easily tell them apart. When they're not together, it's a little bit harder for me to distinguish, right? And I don't know if it's a my brain thing or or what, but in person together, I can always tell them apart. Now, Drury said that he was told by this person who walked in that he was Matt Abbott. And this kind of added up and made, and made sense to Wes Drury at the time. He was like, okay, this is Matt Abbott. And Matt said he lived in the new trailer park off of Highway 61 in Scott City. And he told West Drury that he had been driving just now and he had seen a maroon Buick parked with its lights on at the Benton next way off the highway. But he had a little bit more information than Ruth and Jerry Householder had provided. The person calling himself Matt Abbott claimed that inside the car there had been a girl and she'd been shot. 
West Drury described Abbott as being in an agitated state, and Deputy Jim Newman took it a step further, claiming that he was not only shaken up, but off the wall and hysterical. Since they already had two law enforcement officials on the scene and more on the way, this had already been reported by the householders, West Drury told Matt Abbott to go home and he would be contacted if they had any more questions. Now, many people are going to say that this is the first mistake made in this investigation, that West Drury should have never told Matt Abbott or the person claiming to be Matt Abbott to just go home. You were on the scene. You saw this with your own eyes. You're technically a witness. Go home. We'll call you if we have more questions. How do you feel about that? Is that accurate? Completely agree. Yeah, I mean, at that point, they know they have a, a murder, and this is the first person who had contact with her, and I don't know the extent of that conversation. Did he have any blood on him? So he was wearing a dark-colored shirt. Yep. Uh, West Drury said, as far as he could tell, he did not have blood on him. Right, but at that point, you definitely don't want that person to leave because you want to get a, a full statement from them, but also you are looking at your first person of interest. And obviously you want to take an initial statement from them because that should be their most accurate statement. And that statement would not only consist of their observations on the at the crime scene, but also their whereabouts before, during and after that, you know, that night so that you can lock them into a statement in their Again, when they're most they should remember exactly what they were doing an hour before yeah. you lock them in when they don't necessarily feel like they are a suspect because they're not at that point. And you definitely want to leave them. At, if they're not in any rush, you have them sit down. You wait for detectives to come in and you take in that initial statement so you have it. Obviously, at some point, you're going to you know, allow them to go home. They can go home whenever they want. Um, but yeah, if they're willing to stick around, why would you send them home? Huge mistake. Yes, completely agree. And I mean, West Drury could have probably taken the statement. He's a police officer. He yeah, no, it, it sounds like without knowing this guy, it sounds like what we do see in some cases where just someone being lazy or someone not being, uh, again, if this, you're telling me this person knew that the two officers out at the scene had a dead woman, correct? Yes, because they were calling for an ambulance, yeah, yes. What are we talking about, right? Like, what are we talking mm -hmm. about? You have a dead body and you have an individual who's saying, I came in contact with her. Now he could be telling the truth or he could be the guy who's doing it and now creating an alibi, right? So you'd want to keep them in, in there at minimum, because they're, they're, they could be a really great witness. And you want to get that initial statement when their memory's fresh, any observations that they observed, sounds they may have heard, yeah. those are the things you want to document. Because later, if you're able to find out that what they, what they said as far as where they were before the incident doesn't add up, now you can go back and refer to that initial statement that you locked them into and you can start to pick it apart if there's some, some fallacies in there. So I will say in this in this case, some of the mis mistakes made are obviously more blatant and dare I say nefarious than others. In the case of Deputy West Drury in this moment, I don't think it was a matter of being, oh, I'm going to cover this up. I think it was just this is a small town. They don't even have a homicide unit. They don't deal with murders. They're not really even trained in the process of what to do. So like you said, you'd, you'd want to get his his impressions while they're fresh. Moments after he saw this, what did you see? And can you remember? Did you see anyone else in the area? Did anything seem off? Was anything going on? What direction were you coming from? The basic stuff. And maybe even if you're really feeling like doing a good job, 
do maybe a little luminol test on him, right? For blood. You could do that, right? Luminol test at that point. I mean, this is testing me. I should probably know this, but I, I wonder, I don't know if GSR was available then. Probably not. Yes, it was. Okay. It was. So GSR. Well, I wonder when GSR started. Somebody put that in the comments. When was GSR admissible? It sounds something that was used all the time. And I wonder what year that was. Had to be right around that time, right? Had to be relatively mm-hmm. new and I feel like no. Ninety-two like GSR was probably around for a little while before the. 90s. Interesting question, right? I wonder how long yeah. GSR has been around. But either way, a GSR test minimum. Now, at the time, I don't think that the officer at the scene. What was his name again? The officer at the station. Wes Drury. Drury. I don't think he probably knew those specifics. He might just, like you said, know that there was an ambulance. Let's just assume, for the sake of this conversation, he didn't know yet that. There was, you know, shell casings being found. They weren't relaying that over the air. So maybe he wasn't familiar well, with that. But well, that's Matt, why Matt Abbott been... told him she'd been shot. So over, so he told him he told him while he was there she had been shot, and yeah. then he he came to the station. Okay, so at minimum, yeah, you'd want to keep him there because there's so much information at this point. They're just a witness. You're not only wanting the observations of what he saw involving the victim, but also any potential suspects in the area. Did you see any other cars? Did you see anybody in the area that was that looked suspicious to you? All that. And then maybe once you start putting something together as a formality to rule him out, you say, hey, this guy was referring to himself as Matt. I'm assuming the way you're saying it, he was actually Mark. We don't really know. Okay, we don't know. (laughs) But I mean, then once he comes in, you can ask him, hey, would you be willing to submit to a a GSR test just for, we want to rule you out. You know what I mean? You were there. We want to cover our bases. Would you mind letting us do a GSR on your hands and your palms real quick? Uh, And maybe your, you know, your clothing, just to make sure that you don't have any gunshot residue on you. The argument could be made if he if he gave a statement that he touched her or that he moved her or tried to check if she was alive, mm. he could have some transmission of that trace evidence on his body, which if he's guilty, if he's involved, would be a good thing to say. But yeah, without beating a dead horse, I agree with everything you said. I think you're looking at a situation here where sometimes, even if the officer has 20 years on the job, it's a lack of experience in these particular situations. I'll be right. the first to admit, in my department, we didn't have a ton of murders. So is someone from uh, New York, NYPD, or LAPD going to be better equipped to handle a homicide than someone from my department when they're doing, you know, their homicide units doing a couple hundred murders a year? Yeah, of course they are. They're doing right. it every day. They know it like the back of their hand. So as you mentioned at the top of the show, very small town, not a lot of murders. Something like this comes in and they're just not prepared for it. Yeah, they don't know protocol. It's not like uh, it's not like second nature. They don't snap into it. And, you, and like like you said, some of these police officers in these bigger um these bigger cities where murders are a dime a dozen happening several times every day, they're they're going through the process so much it does become habit. It becomes second nature. They know exactly what to do, like anything. You know, when I first started posting YouTube videos, I would constantly forget to do things. Oh, I forgot to put in tags. Oh, I forgot to, um, you know, hit the, the the end screen. I was constantly forgetting to do that. I used to have a little checklist on my computer to make sure I was doing those things or I would for sure forget. Now that it's been years it's second nature to me. I don't even think about it. My That's body right. does it. My brain does it. And I and I don't even think about it. I go through the motions. Yeah. So it's it's very common. And like I said, there's going to be some mistakes made that are are basically because of this. Just this is not this this police, uh, the sheriff's office, this law enforcement agency in the area was not equipped to handle something. Not only just a murder, but this seemingly random and incredibly violent this young girl shot in the head or you know in the back three times in her car 
And and now you have other things, blood trails outside of the car, all of this crime scene processing that needs to happen. And he just got the call, right, from the people on scene. This is going on. He's trying to call an ambulance. Now some kid's walking in. Oh, I saw this. You know this kid. You know this kid's family. Your first instinct isn't to be like, let me make sure this person doesn't have blood on them. Let me make sure they don't have gunshot residue on them. So I don't say that that West Drury did anything nefarious. But when I do think that somebody's doing something nefarious, you know me, I'll call it out. Oh, I know you will. And and I th- like I said, I agree with everything. And side note real quick, and I, I we'd have to look into it more, but it looks like here, I was researching this a little bit quick as I could, it looks like gunshot residue, be obvious, the testing started in around 1933. Yeah, However, there appears to have been the, the rapid test that I'm accustomed to, because I got on in 2004. The rapid test where it was a kit that we could keep in our patrol vehicles, mm-hmm. that, didn't, that didn't become available till 2002. So yeah. GSR testing has been around for a very long time, long before this incident took place. So it would be, a, it's probably a more lengthy process at that time, but it was something that could be done. The rapid test that we're able to do right at the crime scene. Like we, we're, at this point now, patrolmen can literally pull you to a side. If you're willing to do it, they can wipe you down right there at the scene. If they have any, if, if you're willing wipe to you do so. Wipe you down right there. Right, wipe you down right there. So 1933, for anybody who was curious about that, and the rapid testing crazy. became available in 2002. As soon as you said 1933, I literally saw like a black and white movie where the cops had like those little hats on, you know, they all wore suits. Yeah. In my head, that's what I saw. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Okay, we're back. And we're also, once again, leaving the sheriff's office, going back to Michelle's car. So at the scene of Michelle's car, Officer Roy Moore was doing his best to secure the scene when he was interrupted by the arrival of two vehicles. The first was a white car or hatchback, which he saw driving on the overpass coming from the west. The vehicle turned right on the outer road, which was about 150 yards from the exit ramp, and it would be located in front of the parking lot of Farrell Mobile Home Sales. The car then turned around and headed towards Michelle's car and Moore. So Moore approached the car, signaled for it to stop, and he claimed a young Hispanic man exited the vehicle. This man was between 25 and 30 years of age, stood at between 5'5 and 5'7, about 125 or 130 pounds, with short, dark hair and a thin mustache. The man was wearing a white and blue striped pullover shirt and jeans, and when he spoke, Moore noticed he had a heavy accent. Moore told the man, you know, you need to get back into your car. You need to leave the area. But the man in broken English responded that he was about to run out of gas, needed a place to fill up. Moore told him to keep driving up the interstate about eight or 10 miles and he would find a 24-hour gas station, which is the same one that happened to be owned by the Abbott family in Scott City. Moore reported that this man got back into his car and continued driving down the northbound ramp onto Interstate 55. And because Roy Moore did not in that moment find the man to be suspicious, he did not make note of his license plate number or take his identification. And some people might say this was the second mistake made. Yep, I agree. I mean, yeah, this is obvious. Don't need me to say it. Because it's like 1.30 in the morning yeah. and people are just driving around in the scene and the, like, they specifically turned around and like came that way. Now, I'm not saying this person's suspicious. I'm not saying this they person's They could just a be suspect. a looky-loo. They could just be someone, but still grab could be, Or could be someone genuinely just trying to get gas. Yeah. But now you don't have, if you took his, his identification, if you took his license plate, now you do not have this unknown, right? Now, in this case now, it's unknown. Who was this man? Right. Who was he? But if 
if he got that information, we would know and it would be a non-issue. We wouldn't even have to talk about it. Agreed. Now, that person could turn around and refuse to do that because obviously they weren't in the commission of a crime, but at but minimum- he could still take his license plate. That's what I was going to say. At minimum, you could grab the registration plate. So just a couple minutes later, Officer Roy Moore observed another car approaching and doing the same thing, kind of turning around on that on that little street in front of the mobile home sales and, you know, pulling up to Roy Moore, exiting the vehicle. Now, Moore believed this was around 1.40 a.m. when this happened. And this man was a white male, medium build, around 5'9". He was wearing a light colored shirt and jeans. And he told Moore that he was the one who'd found the girl inside of her car. And he wanted to know, is she dead? Moore asked the man, did you go to the sheriff's office and report seeing her? You know, like, have you talked to anybody? And the man said, yes, he had talked to Wes Drury. So Moore called Wes Drury on the radio to verify. And Wes was like, yes, this is Matt Abbott. He came into the sheriff's office. He reported that he saw the car. And I told him to go home and wait for further instructions. Now, what do you notice uh, in the descriptions of the man that Officer Moore sees at the scene of Michelle's car and the man that Wes Drury talked to just really not long, you know, about 20 minutes before, 20, 25 minutes before at the sheriff's office? Uh, it looks like clothing was different. Clothing. Yeah. yeah. Looks like the clothing was different. So, I mean, sounds like we got two different people there, Detective Harlow. Two different people who might look alike. Might look alike. So, <laughs> and the, the question is, is this, a, is this a coordinated effort? Are they, did one brother call the other? I also, how, how far? Well, it had to be a coordinated effort. Yeah. Right? Well, if they, they were or two they could different have, people. Right. They could have also been together the entire time. No, because he said he was the one who'd gone to the station and talked to Drury. But the guy who talked to Drury said he was mad at it and he was wearing a dark colored shirt. Well, my point is, like, could it have been something where one of them, if they're both at the crime seat initially, one goes in, he comes out and says, they told me to go home. I can't show up at the other place or I don't want to make it too obvious. You go. Or was there a coordinated effort to have one person? How far was the police station from the crime scene? Two miles. Two miles. So we're talking like a five, 10 minute drive, not even. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Very, very close. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. But like you would get off the exit that Michelle's car is parked at. You would turn, I I believe, left. Yep. And just like, yeah, about two, two miles, mile and a half down the road. But as, but as you stated, this person is not saying, hey, my brother went to the station. He's identifying himself as the same person. I was this person. Which sounds pretty idiotic if you really want to think about it because they're not wearing the same clothes. And you don't know that these detectives, well, I mean, you would think the detective at the station or the officer at the station, I should say, would be like, yeah, the kid who came in here, you know, he, I, I sent him home, but he, you know, he, you make a little bit of a report on it. He had a, you know, a purple shirt on with green jeans. And then obviously the detective at the crime scene or the, I keep calling them the detectives. Are they detectives or officers? I mean, it's kind of like the sheriff. They're doing so, a little bit of everything, yeah. right? Some of them, some of them are called deputies. <laughs> yeah, they're a little bit of everything. I don't they're know, the, invest- yeah. the patrolman, the investigator. Yeah, we've seen these before, and so they're doing a little bit of everything. They're everybody. Yeah, yeah. They're, the, they're the dispatcher. They're everything. So, the jailer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. for real, dude. The judge. We're we're in a lot of hats yeah. here. <laughs> he takes, he's the guy who testifies as the like. I wrote him the ticket, and then he gets up in the jury table seat. Changes, and he's like, he puts like a different he's a hat judge, on. And he's like guilty. Pretty much, right? Puts his little like. Like, wig on guilty i believe the officer um <laughs> like goes below the bench comes, comes back up, up. hello <laughs> bounds the gavel, the gavel. <laughs> and everyone in the courtroom's like you're the same person 
No, I'm not. <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, it's like some horrible old 80s like contempt. comedy sketch show. Prison. <laughs> contempt. <laughs> prison. And then he comes out, he pulls the keys on. He's like, now the jailer will take you to prison. I am he. <laughs> this should be an SNL skit. We got, we, exactly. we're on to something here. We're on to something here. So to make, well, to bring much. it back. Yeah. We're joking, but. We're tired. Pretty much. Give us a little yeah. bit of a break here. We're tired. It, it, it's interesting because obviously there's going to be communication between the two sheriffs at a later date very short period of time, they would be able to articulate the description of the person they interacted with. And it would be very apparent that unless this person changed their clothes in the, the two minute, the two mile drive, these are two different individuals. And as you mentioned at the top, these brothers are known to the community and they know that they're twins. So it's not like they're twins from another, you know, another state where they're not familiar to the, to the deputies, to the sheriffs that are, that are interacting with them. So here's what I want to let you know um, from from the people I've talked to, from what I've gathered, the Abbott brothers aren't smart. OK, they're not like idiots, but they're in no way mastermind criminals. And let's say that they were guilty of doing something nefarious. Let's say they were covering something up, hiding something. They wouldn't have gotten away with it in any other place but Benton. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it just happened to be this perfect storm of people not doing their job, of people not knowing what to do, maybe a little favoritism, nepotism, some some sorts of things happening. They they weren't like, oh, we should make sure like let's switch shirts and make sure we're wearing the same clothes. Like these were not people who who understood how to like trick law enforcement. They didn't really have to try that hard to trick law enforcement. So I think that obviously it's a dumb thing to do to show up at the sheriff's station claiming to be Matt Abbott and then show up like 15 minutes later to the scene of the crime wearing a different shirt claiming to be Matt Abbott. But clearly this did not really do any damage to them, right? Yeah. I mean, if you're going to look at it objectively, you could argue that him showing up at the station was a good move, right? Because that's going to bring into question a lot of the evidence that might be on your body or if there's any witnesses that saw you, this would explain that, right? This would explain that away where you can say, hey, I just wanted to come in between the time that someone called you guys and the time that I got here. I, I must have showed up and I went in there. I tried to make sure she was okay. I was moving her around. I obviously saw that she was in bad shape and that there were casings in on the floor. And I realized that this was potentially a murder. And I I freaked out and I wanted to come here immediately and let you know what I saw in case and nobody's called it in yet. Then once he sends you home, you're in the clear. You're in the clear at that point. And for anyone, I, I hate when I do that because people can't see an audio, but I'm like wiping my hands clean. You, you're, you're in the clear at that point. You go home. That's on him. You set it and forget it. What you don't do is now go to the crime scene with your brother. Just like you said, and these say, guys are- And say, is she dead? Yeah, these 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 aren't uh, MIT graduates, you know. Where you know they're not, you know. So it's one of those things where, yeah, I I can see that just from this little bit that uh, even if they're not involved, let's just say for that argument side too, right? They're not involved. The officer told you to go home. Yeah. Why is your brother pretending to be you? you are you being nosy? Because now you're putting yourself in a situation where if you didn't do it, now your actions collectively look suspicious. Yeah. So either way, a bad choice. Or like, check it out. Let's say that twin in the light colored shirt was the one who committed the crime called his brother in the dark colored shirt to help out brother in dark colored shirt goes to the sheriff's office pretending to be light colored shirt dude and says oh i'm the one who reported it thinking if they do fingerprint me or if they do check my clothes for blood or if they right. do test me for gsr they're not going to find anything and they're going to think i'm matt but i'm not matt but they don't know that so now we're in the clear 
you know, right. so that would some, be a brilliant thing to do. It just seems like it was a small window of time. If her body was still warm, it would, it would have had to be like immediately to go home. Hey, bro, I messed up. I need your help. Yeah. Give him the five second version. And, and, and maybe that's why there's not uh, more uh, coordination as far as clothing, because it wasn't well thought out, thought out. Or maybe both were present, but only one well, that was, was hands-on, right? That was the thing I was saying earlier, right? Like if they're both present, they come up with some collaborative effort right there. Hey, listen, you're going to go here. I'm going to go mm-hmm. here. Give it Break. like a five-minute yeah. window mm-hmm. so we can play it off as we're the same person. But yeah, but I still, in that point, why wouldn't you just say, hey, we're two separate people. We were together when we found her. <laughs> you know, like I'm my brother's at the station right now. I'm over here. Why pretend to be the same person? When... If you didn't do anything wrong, why exactly. why do that? Yes. But I think you make a, a valid point. Maybe you're foreshadowing, but you know, the idea, well, then again, I don't even think that would work because what if the brother who goes to the scene, the person on scene is more astute and, and says, hey, yeah, no, I want to take your... I want to take your name. I want to do a GSR. If you if you were but here, but you said I want they to... don't have that test to do the GSR on spot. They could make them go to the station. They could say, "Hey, I'm going to transport yeah, you." Yeah, then to you the just station. tap your other brother in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, bud, you know? I need you back over here. You right, over here. <laughs> exactly. Not so, great. so you know, basically, um, at this point, Officer Moore tells this person who's who's once again, you know, isn't saying the name Matt Abbott, but is saying that he was the one who reported seeing what he had seen at the sheriff's office. And at the sheriff's office, he said he was Matt Abbott. So Moore's like, yeah, that's what West told you to do. Go home and await further instructions. So that is what I will tell you to do now. Go home and await further instructions. So two shots at it. <laughs> Swing Missed. and a miss. Yeah. So the ambulance from North Scott County arrived approximately six minutes later, at which time Angela Michelle Lawless was pronounced dead. And by 2 a.m., Scott County Sheriff Bill Farrell had arrived, but he didn't stay at the scene long at this point. Pretty much what he was, he was kind of coordinating everything, but he wanted the Missouri State Highway Patrol to start processing the scene while he went and notified Michelle's family, who he knew, um, of, of what had happened. And also he wanted to start interviewing people. So after delivering this information to Michelle's parents... Farrell contacted Deputy Brenda Schwitz. He said, hey, can you come over, take my place sitting with Marvin and Esther Lawless so that I can return to Michelle's car? Meanwhile, Wes Drury at the sheriff's office called over to the Abbott gas station, store 24. He wanted to get Matt Abbott's address since he knew they were going to start interviewing witnesses, and he wanted to be prepared with that location to send deputies when that happened. No one on duty at the store that night knew Matt's address, so Wes hung up and called Larry Abbott, the twins' father, at home. It was then that Larry Abbott told Wes Drury, you must be mistaken. You didn't talk to my son, Matt. It's not Matt who lived at the trailer park off Highway 61. It's Matt's twin brother, my other son, Mark Abbott. And Larry would know this because he was actually part owner of that trailer park. So the Missouri State Highway Patrol sent three officers to Michelle's car to begin the official crime scene investigation. They were Sergeants Jim Keithley and Dennis Overboy and Corporal S.J. Hinesley. They took photos of the scene, including inside and outside the car, as well as the blood on the pavement, which trailed over the guardrail and down the embankment on the other side. They collected blood samples from the hood of the car, the puddle on the pavement, the shoulder of the road, and from the guardrail itself. And then they went over the guardrail and followed the trail of blood in the grass that led to a field behind the highway where more blood was discovered. And in some areas, large swaths of grass were flattened as if someone had been lying there. And the trail of blood and trampled grass ended about 103 feet away where a footprint was found and photographed. 
The processing of the scene was finished by 5.30 a.m., and by 6.30, Sergeants Keithley and Overboy began processing the Buick. Reserve Deputy Rick Walter had found two shell casings inside the car when he'd initially inspected it. A third was found under a pair of boat shoes in the car. In the center console, they found five rings, like rings that you put on your fingers, one of them being a Kelly High School class ring. And in the back seat, they found a neck brace, a note of a doctor's appointment, and some medical records which suggested Michelle had been in a car accident. And later, police would interview a young man named Jeremy Turner, who Michelle had met at college, and he would tell them that he'd invited Michelle to go on a hayride with him in mid-October, and she said she couldn't because she was still healing from a car accident she'd been involved in. Michelle's purse was found in the car as well. Remember, her head had been partially lying on it in the passenger seat. The contents were inspected and photographed, but there was no wallet. And according to Marvin Lawless, Michelle's father, Michelle did have a wallet usually. It was brown and black and about six inches long and an inch thick. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. So Michelle's autopsy was performed by Dr. Michael Zarakor, and it began at 8.30 a.m. at Mineral Area Regional Medical Center. Michelle's cause of death was obviously clear. Three gunshot wounds to her head and back. Based on trajectory and the position of Michelle's body in the car, it was believed that the first shot was fired as she sat upright in the driver's seat looking at her attacker. This bullet had entered the left side of her face through her cheek, and it had exited the back of her neck at the left side of her hairline. Zarakor noted a 9 by 8 centimeter pattern of stippling around Michelle's cheek wound, which told him the bullet had been fired at close range. And gunshot residue on her palms indicated that Michelle had brought her hands to her face. Yeah, block to block her face. Yep. Yeah, in an effort to defend herself, which as we know is futile, as she most likely knew was futile, but it is a natural human reaction. Yeah, what are you going to do? If somebody's like yeah. striking you, you're going to put your hand up to protect yourself. It makes perfect sense. And if somebody is putting a gun to your face, you're still going to put your hands up to try and protect yourself. Of course. Yeah, like you said, natural reaction. But that that's a large stippling pattern. So very close, I would very assume. Close. Like less than, a, less than probably a foot. Oh, yeah. I think it would yeah. be from somebody standing directly outside her window. It's outside the window, yeah. So, I mean, it's... Because that the gun stippling, when you think about it, it's basically the gunpowder. It's so hot that it almost tattoos your it burns, skin. Yeah. That that's what you're looking at. So you think about it. If you're like, and I'm sure a lot of you have seen these videos where the gun goes off in slow motion, and you see like this puff of this cloud come out of the muzzle of the gun. Well, there's actually gunpowder within that. Little fragments of it, little microscopic amounts of gunpowder. And if someone is close enough, that gunpowder is because it's so hot, it'll burn the skin and you get these patterns around the bullet wound where you can see the gunpowder singe the skin. And so obviously, if they're more than a couple feet away, you won't have that stippling. So you see this a lot with suicides and obviously close proximity shootings. Yeah, I always think of it um, if, if somebody's not familiar with the stippling of a, a gunshot wound. And they're more familiar with like art. Uh, you see this in painting too. The, it's a technique used, stippling, and and it's very similar to what it looks like. It's like putting the paintbrush in, in paint and kind of just like tapping it on, but it makes the same kind of pattern. It makes the same kind of texture almost. Yeah, I would almost think if you take a paintbrush, right, to to expound upon that, and you just flick the end of the brush really close to the paper creates like all these little speckles. Yeah, exactly. That's what a circular speckle. That's what you're going to be seeing, but obviously black. And would it feel raised on the skin, most likely? Uh, when I've seen it, it's not necessarily raised. No. 
No. I guess it would depend on how close in the irritation cause of the skin. Usually you have some redness and you would have, depending on how long the person's been been dead, but more so it's just that black stippling. If time has passed where you can tell the muzzle of the gun was within six inches, usually. Stippling only, I think it's only up, and this is testing my memory, it's only a couple feet that you'll even have any type of stippling. It's not far at all. Well, the second shot had entered the back of Michelle's head on the left side, cutting through her brainstem and lodging behind her right eye. The path of this bullet was horizontal, indicating she'd still been mainly upright, and it was believed that the second shot was fired shortly after the first, once she had turned right and started to fall across the center console. Well, think about something there, right? It's not even fall, At that point, you get punched in the face or something, right? Just the pressure the, of that five, that gun, that that, that round hitting your face is going to naturally cause your face to turn. So she might not have even been going down yet, not enough time to react because our shooter probably fires concurrently. Bang, bang, you know, almost yeah, that quick. Yeah. But the pressure, just the force of that gun, of that bullet hitting the side of her cheek, it naturally turns her head away from the shooter. And as the second round's coming out of the gun, it's hitting her in the back of the head as opposed to the cheek again. The third and final shot entered the lower left side of Michelle's back and it exited near her right breast before entering her right forearm and lodging itself there. Dr. Zaracor noted a 4.5 by 3.8 centimeter area of stippling around that entrance wound and the bullet had taken a path traveling 60 degrees upward from her back, indicating that the bullet had been fired down on Michelle from behind and above as she lay in her final position, draped across the center console of her car. Two bullets had been removed from Michelle's body during the autopsy and turned over to law enforcement, but the bullet from the first shot, the one that had gone through the left side of her face, it was not found initially in Michelle's body or in her car. It would be recovered later when the highway patrol officers returned to the vehicle specifically looking for that missing bullet, and under closer inspection, they spotted a small hole in the headrest of the driver's seat. After cutting open the headrest and removing some padding, the bullet was discovered. Michelle also had two curvilinear lacerations to the top of her head, which were consistent with blunt force trauma. And it was believed these wounds, which were not life-threatening, but which would have bled profusely, were the source of the blood found outside the vehicle. The blood trail outside the car was theorized to have been deposited while Michelle was being hit in her head, but law enforcement could not distinguish whether the trail had been made on the way down the embankment or on the way up. Several fingernail marks were found on the back of Michelle's right hand and wrist, and these were believed to have been left while she was struggling with her attacker and while she was grabbed during the struggle. Samples were taken for a sexual assault kit, and blood and urine samples were taken for toxicology testing. The forensic evidence was sent to the Southeast Missouri Crime Lab in Cape Girardeau, and toxicology results would later come back showing that Michelle did have alcohol in her system, but she wasn't legally drunk at the time of her death. Her BAC was less than 0.05%, and her urine showed no sign of drugs. There was also no sign of sexual assault. A vaginal smear from the rape kit showed no intact human sperm present. However, tests for the presence of prostatic acid phosphate, or PAP, were positive, suggesting there had been seminal fluid present in Michelle's body because apparently seminal fluid is rich in PAP. I've seen this before in other cases. In those cases, it was the individual had a vasectomy, but you could have a situation where even though there's no sperm detected, you still, like you said, that that other fluid is a lot more... I guess I would call it potent, you know, yeah. where it's e it's more easily detected. 
Yeah, especially in 1991 when all of these forensic tests were just far less. Yep. You know, yeah, we had, we had the, the uh, serial killer case that we had in Hawaii where we had a, a lot of PAP but no no sperm. And we later learned that the the main suspect in this case actually had a vasectomy. So at that point, you're like, okay, now it makes sense. Yeah, because when you have a vasectomy, you just don't you don't have sperm anymore. Obviously, that's the point. Like you're not ejecting sperm anymore, but you are still ejecting seminal fluid. Yeah, still, yeah. still ejaculate. Yep. So although the blood at the scene belonged to Michelle, scrapings from underneath her fingernails showed a mixture of two blood types from at least two different people. The two blood types were A and B. Michelle was type A, so she could not have been the source of the B antigen. But if she had scratched her attacker, this information could be used to rule out people who had type A or type O blood. Now, this always like bothers me because I just don't see how it could. Because what if she didn't scratch her attacker? What if the the stuff under her fingernails was from herself? Or maybe she had like, you know, had sex earlier with somebody, consensual sex earlier with somebody, and the blood under her fingernails or the skin cells under her fingernails were from that person. How can you be using that to rule out anyone at this point? Because what if she didn't scratch her attacker? So... It's a good point. I think what it goes on to there is as part of the investigation, you have to track your victim's history, the, the, the what led up to it. Was she seeing anyone? Was she sexually active with anyone? Yeah, did she they get did an that. Alter- and yes, she was. The, okay. They, did they have an alt- did she have an alter physical altercation with another female or a male that they're aware of, whether it was, you know, at a party or something? All these things you'd want to know the whereabouts of your victim as much as you can with, you know, weeks, months leading up to it to try to find motives, potential suspects, all these things. And part of that would be um, ruling people out because let's say like a boyfriend, she's having sex with them or she's having just sex with someone who, I don't know, friends with benefits, if you want to call it that. Right. If that person- A situationship. Yeah, situationship. If it comes back that the skin cells underneath that DNA belongs to that individual, well, obviously you're going to want to investigate them further, but using other information like an alibi where they're not in the state or at a, at a place that they can be uh, it can be corroborated by an impartial witness that they were there. Well, then you can rule them out in that sense. It can't be in two places at once. But I wouldn't say this is nothing. I would still say, hey, listen, it's unless you're talking about a situation where it's a more aggressive sexual experience, it's not common to have the DNA from another individual under your fingernails. Um, and I don't so, know what kind of sex you're having, man. I'm not even going to comment on that. I'm just saying, like I'm that is actually rolling. super common. I'm going to keep it rolling. So it's one of those things where, and also you have to think if she's, if she's, if she's hygienic and she's showering and she's cleaning on her nails, that it would have to be in a relatively reasonable window of time. So yeah, she might be someone who's having that type of sex, but if she hasn't had sex with this person in two or three weeks, depending on the amount of DNA that was recovered from under her nails, I mean, there's points I've seen times where you can literally see the skin under their fingernails. That So it's not like, micro. It's there's a lot. And in that case, you would assume she's washed her hands at least once or twice in between those experiences. So I still think it's obviously really a valuable information and it could definitely help to maybe limit some people because you could couple this information with other information to build a, a profile on this person and maybe collectively it may fit one person as opposed to another. So I think I also read somewhere that um, the B antigen might not have even come from anybody's blood because um, that it, it can be found in like soil and bacteria and stuff too. So I just um, I don't see 
how you can like I agree it's important information to have and like keep in your back pocket but I don't see how you could use it to just rule out people I guess you know no I wouldn't rule people out and just to to I'm guessing here but let's just say for the sake of this conversation we're going to learn that the Abbots did not have this B type blood that in and of itself would not be enough for me to rule them out, right. right? It would be part of my, you know, decision-making process. But if there's five other things that implicate them, this in and of itself isn't enough to say definitively, well, you know what, this, it couldn't potentially be them because as you've mentioned a few minutes ago, there are other ways that B-type blood could have gotten there other than her being attacked. So yeah, that in and of itself is not enough, but I would say on the other end of it, with all these things with the Abbots, if they also had the B-type blood, would it be part of my affidavit when I get an arrest warrant? Of course. So the samples were later sent to the FBI, and they were able to develop a partial DNA profile that could not be used for identification, but could be used for elimination purposes. Now, most of the fingerprints from the car were smudged and unusable, (laughs) allegedly. I just think maybe they weren't lifted properly, but okay. However, three usable palm prints were found on the hood of the car, and those were cataloged. Now, these palm prints may have been Michelle's, but unfortunately, she had not been fingerprinted at the time of her autopsy. So they didn't know that. Do you think that's a mistake? To fingerprint her, the victim? To not, so that you you can't even tell if the palm prints on her hood were from her. No, you would definitely want to fingerprint her. And I just to say what you said, I will tell you more times than not, it's unfortunate, but the fingerprints or palm prints are smudged. It's so hard to get a good print, especially if there's some type of attack. Mm-hmm. Your hands don't naturally go on something. If you're watching on YouTube where it's like, you know, they just drop right on the the, the surface because just a little bit of a slide, just a little, just even the slightest slide screws up a print. It's like the most frustrating thing ever. Yeah, but you'd think like if you're not talking about fingerprints or palm prints left from an attack, you're just talking about fingerprints being left from Michelle being in her car having friends in her car, they're touching the radio, stuff like that. Those fingerprints should be kind of easier to lift, right? You would think. It's it's, Fingerprints were so frustrating. I was never great at fingerprints. I loved doing them. I told you the story before. I got a really good footprint one time that solved the case. What was it, a drugstore or something? Yeah, robbery. But I've had a couple, but I I remember when I first learned, I was trying to, I was dusting everybody's house. The fingerprint dust was everywhere. It was like a larceny for an Xbox and I'm dusting their entire room. And like their entire, by the time I left, they they had to get a cleaning crew in there because I had finger, because by the way, anyone who's never used it, go buy a fingerprint kit offline. The fingerprint dust is the absolute worst thing to have in your home. It just- So you're telling people they should go buy one and put it on their home? Yeah, we have one at home. I had Tenley, Tenley wanted one and it was, it was a mistake. It was definitely a mistake, but. So don't do that guys. No, but to back to your question here, yes, you're probably, you should have fingerprints everywhere depending on how long they've been there. Cause obviously it's from the oils in the skin. That's what the fingerprint dust attaches to yeah. different services, depending on how porous they are. There's so many elemental factors. Have they used any type of cleaning agents to clean the car in recent amount of time? So many, so many factors. We could talk 20 minutes about fingerprints. So do you think they should have taken her prints at the time of her autopsy? That's usually a formality, to be honest with you. I mean, I know where we are. You're taking her fingerprints and even footprints as well, um, just so you have those on file so you can rule them out as a potential as a potential match to whatever fingerprints or palm prints you find at the scene. Yeah. So maybe, you know, like once again, is this a nefarious mistake or just this is not a place that's used to dealing with these kinds of crimes? I mean, normally if a person dies from a heart attack or natural causes, you're not really going to be too concerned with taking their fingerprints. So once again, maybe this just wasn't something that had become habitual for the person who 
did the autopsy. It doesn't seem like there was a lot of experience on scene. I know you had state police out there and stuff. It just seems like, yeah, coulda, shoulda, woulda. Missouri I don't, I don't think Highway at this point, Patrol. Is that state police? Missouri uh, Highway Patrol? I'm assuming it's state, but you're right. It could be, yeah, it could be like California Highway Patrol type deal where they're not yeah. state police. I, don't know I know our, our highways... I know our highways are, you know, are patrolled by state police, but yeah, you might be right. So there's not any, the FBI is not there. We'll put it that way. Finally, the three bullets were examined and it was determined that they had been fired from a 38 caliber automatic pistol. Even before Michelle's autopsy had been done, Sheriff Bill Farrell and Deputy Brenda Schwitz were interested in talking to Michelle's boyfriend, Leon Lamb. Now, Leon and Michelle were not actually in a committed relationship at that point. They had been dating on and off for about two years before they'd sort of completely broken up. But the two had still been drawn together and they would occasionally hook up, which is what Leon told Sheriff Farrell and Deputy Schutz that they had done that night that Michelle turned up dead in her car. So Farrell and Schwitz went to the trailer on Kinder Street where Leon lived with his mother and grandmother and Leon broke down the events of the night before. He said he'd run into Michelle more than once that evening. The first time had been around 7 p.m. in the parking lot of the Sykeston Mall, where he took Taekwondo classes. He said Michelle was with her best friend, Lalisha O'Dell, and they were walking towards the car of Vince Howard, a mutual friend. Later, Leon spotted Michelle and Lalisha again on Malone. He said they were in Vince's car, and another person known to both Leon and Michelle was also present, and his name was Eric Shanks, and they were cruising around. After this, Leon claimed he went home and he was up late practicing Taekwondo when he heard a knock at his door around midnight. It was Michelle. He said she was drunk. He said they chatted for a bit. They had sex in his bedroom. And then she left just about 45 minutes later after the two shared a goodbye kiss. Leon said it seemed as if she was in a hurry. She hadn't even buttoned her jeans all the way. And she was carrying her bra and her shoes in her hand. Having Michelle leave Leon Lamb's home around 12.45 a.m. and knowing that the householders had spotted Michelle's car on that exit ramp around 1.15 a.m., it really narrowed down the window of the crime to just about 15 minutes because the drive from Leon's trailer to the Benton exit would have taken Michelle roughly 15 minutes to complete. Now, Leon did have a gun that belonged to his mother. Um, it was a 38, but it wasn't an automatic. And he cooperated immediately when the police asked if they could search his car. So we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to kind of come back and discuss what we just talked about. Okay, we're back. Quick, quick question for you. Yeah. Is it worth explaining do you think that we're past the point where everyone here kind of knows automatic versus revolver, why that's important in this case? I don't think everybody knows that, no. Okay. So obviously with a revolver, you have you know six rounds where the round the shell casings contain the projectile, the rounds, the, the bullets will go into that revolver. You spin around, kind of like you see in the movies, you close it up, you shoot all six rounds, and then you have to manually open up that revolver, dump out the shell casings into your hand, and then reload the firearm. Whereas with an automatic weapon, it's self-ejecting, right? It's re it's it's switching rounds to the the next projectile. And as it's doing so, it's 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 putting a round into the chamber, but also extracting the shell casing. That 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 shell casing will extract and get thrown into the air, usually to the right. So in this case, you have the shell casings at the crime scene, which suggests that as the offender was shooting, those rounds are being ejected into the vehicle. 
that's how they know it was an automatic weapon. That's how we decide as investigators when we get to a crime scene. Normally in those cases, unless the offenders are someone who does this all the time, they will usually have those shell casings on the ground and there'll be a certain pattern on the ground to show where the offender was standing, where they were shooting. Because they were shooting an automatic weapon, we can kind of surmise where they were standing when they were firing those rounds. Whereas with a revolver, when we don't find it, you know, we might have a victim who has four or five bullet wounds, but no shell casings. And it should be obvious based on how close they were shot. We, we can we can pretty much surmise from that point that the offender was using a revolver at the time of the shooting. There are rare cases, just to point it out there, where if you have someone who's familiar with, again, these types of shootings, they'll put a bag over their hand if they have an automatic weapon. They'll literally tie a garbage bag or like a shopping bag over their hand, close up their wrist. So as they're firing, the rounds are going into the bag. So I think that's very helpful, actually, because I, I think obviously you're familiar with guns in a very yeah. intimate way. Yeah. Um, and and some people might say like, oh, well, what's the, what does it matter if it was an automatic or yeah. um, what, what like a, a, a pistol? A revolver. Yeah. A revolver. To, summar- so, so, to summarize, an offender is not going to use a revolver, shoot their offender, empty out the shell casings and then throw them into the car right. with the victim because it, it, it links their firearm to the crime scene. Those shell casings are left behind because the offender the offender has a sense of urgency to get out of there, and they don't have time to dive into the car and get them. They're left they're behind. They're kind of just being projected every which way. Right, it's yeah. dark. You're, those rounds are going off. There's gunpowder residue in the air. There's usually smoke after a firearm's fired, and obviously you just killed someone. You don't want to be seen at the crime scene cleaning up Scramble by a passerby. Around. Yeah. So you shoot and you get out of there, and unfortunately, the rounds are left behind because of it. For, uh, fortunately, fortunately for investigators, yeah. yeah. So that's that's the case you have. That's like I said, it's very ninety nine point nine percent of the time. That's what you have. If you have shell casings left behind, it's an automatic weapon where the gun itself is naturally ejecting those rounds after the gun is fired each time. And I think it's also important to note in these cases, like we say, oh, Leon Lamb did have a gun, but it wasn't the exact right gun. That doesn't mean that he doesn't have the exact right gun. It just means right. he's not sharing that with with law enforcement. You know, right? He like, might not have a he might have a, own another gun that's not registered that's not to registered. him. Registered. Yeah. Yep. So next, Sheriff Farrell and Deputy Schwitz questioned Michelle's best friend, Lalisha Odell, who at that time was at the home of a young woman named Chantal Kreider. And Chantal is going to come in and become quite important to this. Now, Lalisha said that she, Michelle, and Chantel had all planned to go out together the previous night, which was a Saturday night, but Chantel had pulled out at the last minute when her military boyfriend arrived in town unannounced. Lalisha seemed to have the same series of events as Leon Lamb, but her times were different. So Lalisha said that she and Michelle had met at Chantel's house around 7.30 or 8 p.m., After Chantel had said she was no longer going out, they left together and they were in the parking lot where Leon saw them by 10 p.m. Now, remember, I think he said he saw them around 7.30, but Lelisha's saying they're there by 10. And then they, she did say, yes, we remembered. We talked to Leon. We saw Leon. Michelle left her car in the parking lot and the two of them, Lelisha and Michelle, they rode around, they cruised with their friends, Vince and Eric, for about 30 minutes. They stopped at Sonic, and they drove up and down Malone, which is kind of what the same thing Leon said. He said they saw he saw them later driving up and down Malone. Lelisha said that she and Michelle had consumed a few beers given to them by a guy named Mike. Actually, at first she said we had one beer each, and then Sheriff Farrell was like, was it one little lady? And she was like, well, maybe it was like two or three each. You know, then she came clean. But that's just because they're underage and she probably doesn't feel comfortable, you know, 
admitting to how many beers they had at that point. But remember, Leon said when he saw Michelle, she was drunk. But we know from her blood alcohol content, she wasn't that drunk when when she died, which wouldn't have been that long after. Could Some of it could have dissipated and also... Different people react differently to certain amounts of liquor. Sometimes I'm sure we all have that friend after one beer, mm-hmm. they're stumbling all over the place. Yeah. And she was young, 19. Yeah, of you know? course, probably not drinking a ton. Mm-hmm. So uh, afterwards, Michelle asked Lelisha, you know, do you want to spend the night at my house? And Lelisha said, you know, it's probably not a good idea. I've got to be up for work really early tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. And so Michelle said, well, can I spend the night at your house? And Lelisha said, that probably wasn't a good idea either because her bedroom was being painted and she was sleeping on the sofa in the living room. So Lelisha felt it had been around midnight when Michelle dropped her off at her house. Now, from what I can tell, Lelisha lived on Montgomery Street in Cape Girarda, and Leon Lamb lived on Kinder Ave in Sykeston, and the distance between the two is about 30 minutes. So someone definitely has their timing off here, because if Michelle dropped Lilish off at her house at 12, then she wouldn't have been able to be at Leon's shortly after midnight, and she wouldn't have been able to leave Leon's at around 12.45. But we're going to get more in-depth into this timeline when we talk next time. And we've talked about this a lot over the two years we've been doing this. A lot of the times it's not nefarious. It's time, descriptions, <laughs> they're, they're always off. It's very rare that you get someone who's like, yep, it was – there usually has to be something, whether it's a TV show or something that or they were doing. Or a text message or a phone call on something. your phone. Yeah. But I can't tell you more times than not, the times are always off. They just are. It's just it's part of the game. Well, at 924 that morning – Chief Deputy Tom Beardsley. So he's going to basically be in second in command under Sheriff Bill Farrell at this time um, of Michelle's murder. He arrived at the trailer of Mark Abbott in Scott City to question him about what he had seen earlier that morning. Now, at that time, no one answered when he knocked on the door. He got no response when he returned at 1015 a.m. At 12.45 p.m., Beardsley and West Drury returned to the trailer, and this time they did find Mark there. But when Drury addressed him as Matt, which was the name that he gave him when he showed up in an agitated state to the sheriff's office the night before, Mark corrected him. He said, no, I'm Mark, remember? I told you I was Mark when I saw you yesterday, which I think is a really weird thing to say, but that's what he said. This is the problem right here. Why it's important to get that initial statement, right? Because mm-hmm. now it's his word against his. And and now you've got on paper him saying, hi, I'm Matt Abbott. This is what I saw. And now he's signing it. Right. Yeah. Right. Now, if he signs Mark at that point, maybe the, maybe the officer did mishear. Maybe the officer heard wrong. Yeah. Right. But we don't know now. Now mm-hmm. it's just a matter of who do you believe? Yeah. It's a he said, she said. There you go. Now, Mark Abbott, who was 23 years old, he told Beardsley and Drury that he'd been out the night before. He was driving around in his black Chevy S10 pickup truck when he'd spotted Michelle's car at the exit ramp around 1.10 a.m. Now, this is also something that that stands out. Mark Abbott says, and Mark Abbott drove a, a pickup truck. It was in his driveway when they were talking to him. He was known to drive that truck. However, when the person pulled up to, to Moore the night before, right after that white car left, This person who said, oh, yes, I saw her and I just reported to the sheriff's office, he was not driving a truck. He was driving a car. The person who drove up to the crime scene. Mm -hmm. Got it. 
So Mark says, I spotted Michelle's car at the exit ramp around 1.10 a.m. That time was his best guess. That's what he thought it was. Obviously, like you just said, this is not a time where cell phones are a thing. Um, This was his best guess of when he saw Michelle's car, which would have been about five minutes before Jerry and Ruth Householder drove by and saw Michelle's car. Right. Which would which could be the accurate time when the incident, if he's involved, when it occurred. And that's how he knows that time, because he didn't see anybody around. So he could say, yeah, I was there around 110 when I spotted her. But like I said, listen, Michelle leaves Leon Lamb's house at 1245, around 1245. It's going to take her 15 minutes to get from his house to the exit ramp where she was. That's right. So you're one o'clock. That's like 10 minutes. I think whatever happened, I think whatever happened, happened in that probably that quickly. I mean, maybe my changes in my opinion based on hearing more specifics, but, you know, knowing where everyone was, but. This had to be a quick interaction that went south. It would have had to have been a quick interaction. But then you also have this whole blood outside the car, blood over the guardrail. Yeah, I'm a little little, uh, uncertain about that right now. But this could, in theory, all happen within a few minutes. Yes. So it's it's in that time frame. I think him saying 110. Yeah, I, I believe her getting shot obviously is happening very fast. But even this is the assault. I don't know like how quick the interaction, but let's just say for two two sides here, if he did show up at 110, it would make, and he's actually a witness in this case, it would make perfect sense. He was there. He saw what happened, freaked out, got in his car, drives to the station, and he's leaving. The other witnesses are almost pulling up right on his backside. So that that's why she, they don't see him there because he was already there. If he's the offender, there's only a small window where she would have been at that area. You've already just laid it out. So that interaction would have had to happen between that times. If Leon's times are right, right? When she left, then that would be, what if she left a little earlier than what he said? He's saying 1245, right? What if she left at 1230? Just, just 15 minutes off. Not a big deal, right? How many times have you been 15 minutes off with your estimates? All the time. All the time. So him being off, we're talking about a matter of minutes making the difference. It very well could be that she left at 1230 as opposed to 1245. But still. If the householders see her at 115 and they drive right to the sheriff's office and report it, but Mark Abbott saw her at 110, that begs the question, well, how did the householders get to the sheriff's office to report it and then leave before you did? What did you well, do? I mean, well, that's what I'm saying. That's pretty obvious. Yeah. What you, did you, you went home. You went somewhere. You didn't go right to the sheriff's office. Yeah. No, no. hundred percent. Oh, I thought we've kind of already established that. Like, I oh, mean, we're still. Well, yeah. Yes. We, we did. That would be, but. No, that would be the thing because I mean, based on what you're laying out as far as two brothers being together, if they're they had to get allegedly, two different vehicles, that's just theory. A theory that yeah. these two brothers now are in separate vehicles, mm-hmm. whether that was because they were together and they went and grabbed a second vehicle, or one brother went home and informed the other brother what was going on. Yeah, there's going to be a delay there. But I guess the point you're making, which I'm I'm following, yeah, I'm, I'm with you, is that if you're to believe that Mark Abbott who's now identifying himself as Mark is an innocent eyewitness and he he got spooked and went right to the station, which most people would do. And that's what he said he did as well. Right. We're not just speculating. He said I was there and I went, I I came here to tell you what I saw. Not necessarily. Did did he say he went home first? He changes his story a bunch. Okay. Well, again, bringing back the importance of taking that statement. Okay. We'll continue. Mark said when he saw the car, he thought it was weird because not only were the exterior lights on, the headlights, but the interior lights of the Buick around. And he said he could see someone inside the car. And this this once again stands out to me because how can you see 
someone inside the car. She's crumpled over. She's laying across the center console. The householders, when they pulled up next to her car, could not see anyone inside of her car, even with the dome light on, remember? If he's in a pickup truck, you'd be able to see him. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, you'd be looking down at the car. He, I can see. I, I'm with that. I believe okay. that. I, isn't, all the time isn't the S10 like tiny? Chevy S10, it's not the biggest pick truck, pickup like truck in the little, world. Isn't it like a little little baby pickup truck? <laughs> it's still elevated. It's you got a little elevated. baby pickup truck, Mark. And she and she's not, not like a on real the floor. Pickup truck. Oh my god, she's not on the floor. She's hunched over the car center console. Her knees are propped up, so she's elevated. If you're in a pickup truck driving by, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt there. You but he could didn't. See in the car. He didn't drive by. He pulled up behind her car. Even so, okay. Even so, he could maybe see her between the seats. Okay, maybe. So. Anyways, he says he could see someone inside the car, and his initial thought was someone was drunk and and passed out in the car. Now I'm going to play you a clip from the Lawless Files. This is a podcast created by journalist Bob Miller, an excellent podcast, and he had voice actors recreate verbatim the interaction between law enforcement and Mark Abbott on this afternoon of Sunday, November 8th, 1992. Can you tell me a little more about what happened when you first saw the car? Well, when I first saw the car, I just pulled off the side of the road, you know. Which way were you going? I was going north and got off at the exit. Okay, so you passed the car? Yeah, I pulled up beside it. The lights were on, the interior lights were on, and I could see somebody there. I thought somebody's drunker than hell, you know, late over is what I thought. And uh, I got out. Man, I got to get this off the road. I got out and I reached in there and grabbed her. But when I did, I didn't even notice the the blood or nothing. What I thought was, here's a little something. I thought this was a guy and I thought the person threw up on herself, you know, is what I was thinking when I picked her up. She was cold and bloody. And I said, oh, shit, I got to get the hell out of here. So then I got on the way home and I turned right around and I came back to you. Was the door open when you got there, or was it closed? The driver's door. It was, I just reached in the window, it was closed. The window part way down? The window was all the way down. All the way down? Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, I, I could reach in there and grab a hold of her side. Was the motor running? I think so. The interior light was on. The lights was just bright as hell. The headlights, the, the parking lights, if it... Wasn't for the rings and stuff on her hand. I seen the rings on her hands, you know. You couldn't even tell it was in a girl. She was in bad shape. What were you driving last night? That truck right there. Pickup? Yeah. Did you see any other cars or other people in the area? Well, when I come up the exit, some guy looked like a hitchhiker. He looked like he jumped off in the ditch, you know. Uh, that exit, I thought, no, that son of a bitch thought I was, that, that was before I got to the car. I thought to myself, that son of a bitch thought I was trying to hit him or something with a vehicle. He jumped off, completely off that damn ditch, and I thought about that later. East or west side? On the side coming, he was walking this way. Okay, was he up on the highway? No, well, he was on the shoulder, see, the blacktop part. He jumped completely off the damn, just jumped completely off the off the damn blacktop. And I thought, that son of a bitch thought I was going to hit him or something, you know, with a vehicle. That was before I got up there. Did you get any kind of look at him, what he looked like? He was about her size, you know, a pretty good-sized person. 
What would you guess, about 5'10", 5'11"? Yeah. What colors did he have on? Gray. Something uh, a little lighter than these jeans. Something uh, like a sweatshirt. I wasn't paying that much attention, you know. Could you tell me what color the sweatshirt was? It was gray, you know, the, the blue and gray look. Was he wearing a hat? Mm-mm. How close did you get to him before he jumped out of the way? Or he jumped in the ditch? Had to be pretty close or I wouldn't have seen him in that truck. Probably, I could barely see him. I think I had low beams on and I kicked it on high right when I seen him. Just, you know, just basically that color sweatshirt. Lighter jeans, you know. It looked like they was wore out, you know, like they wasn't no dark blue like what you got on. Could you tell if his hair was dark or light? Dark, I think. He didn't really have no hat on. It was quick, really. I only seen the back of it. Could you see his feet to tell what kind of shoes he had on? No. You said you headed home after you checked her? Right here to the house. How far did you get down before you went back? I basically went straight there. I think I went right there. I headed home the Benton way. 61? Yeah, I thought I better get up there. That girl might be alive, you know. What's your best guess about what time all this took place? Oh, about 10 after 1, something like that. If you can think of anything else, give us a call, will you? I sure will. Did she make it? No. Who was she? Michelle Lawless. From Benton? Marvin Lawless's daughter. Was she right in the head? Her head was just covered with blood. You know, you could tell she... I'll be damned. I thought she was like an out-of-state person. She was 19. I knew she was young, just a little bitty girl. I picked her up real easy. God damn. We might need to get some elimination prints from you. They're lifting some prints out of the car. Mine are probably right there in the doorway. We may need to get some from you if you can come down there sometime today. Be okay in about an hour? Yeah. I believe I touched the damn doorway. I don't even know if I did or not. First off, we, we've established that he did say he pulled up right beside her. We were a little bit unsure about that. So he pulls up beside the vehicle, looks in, and then I kind of got the feeling that he pulled up beside her and then pulled in front of her. That's how his headlights uh, potentially saw this quote-unquote hitchhiker. So that's one. The other thing that was stood out to me a little bit is you had said earlier in the episode that the detective described her body as being warm and clammy, yeah. and yet he described her body as being cold which would not line up because he would have seen or felt her before uh, before the detective had even touched her. And mm-hmm. you have to go, the detective here, probably go with his observations because, again, he's looking for these things. He's test, he's checking her to see if she's still alive. Also, we know that she wouldn't have been dead for that long. So She wouldn't have been dead for yeah. that long. There's a small window. So to say she was warm and clammy, I, I think it would be hard to get that wrong. I yeah. can tell you from, unfortunately, being around... Uh, dead bodies before it's v- very obvious the difference right and there's also some more rigidity there's a lot of things there so we could be looking at a situation where um if if abbott did in fact touch her skin um at this point he's speculating as to what the cops would have felt by the time they got there or he's trying to paint a picture that she had been there for a while mm-hmm. so that's just again just initial thoughts you had said something i had a question about i wrote he said that he saw the rings on her hand, but didn't you say the rings were off her hand when police officers showed up? Correct. Okay. That's a problem, right? So again, is that because he's remembering that when he interacted with her, the rings were still on her hand? Observation. Now let's get to the hitchhiker, right? We have this hitchhiker. Now there's two things that are going on here, right? We got to look at it from both perspectives. If I'm doing this interview, first, first option, he's telling the truth. And he's just someone who's telling exactly what he saw. 
And now he's giving the detective a potential suspect. He's saying, listen, I don't know much, but I know what I saw, not knowing that they have this blood trail and this blood on the guardrail and all these things. And he's just a really good witness because he doesn't even know it, but he actually saw the killer more than likely. The second option, which is the one that you're smirking because of right now, is that the only reason he would know that investigators are going to find that guardrail covered in blood and find some probably some trace evidence and another crime scene over that rail is because he's the offender. He knows where it originated and he's going to want to paint a picture that points at someone else, although he's he's presenting it as some form of ignorance. Oh, is this a hitchhiker? I just barely got him. And he gives this very vague description of him, gray, gray, light colored jeans and grayish blue sweatshirt. Maybe it was mm-hmm. rainbow colored. We don't know. Um, that's something. And then I, I was a little confused in the last part. He said, I went home, but then he also said, but I went directly there. Was he saying like, I went home, um, but then decided to go directly there? Or was he saying I went home and then I went directly home? I was a little confused on that. What was Or like I went home and then I went directly there. There, yeah. yeah. So it was a little confusing. Uh, I get what you're saying now when I asked that question beforehand. But those are my observations from that statement. Obviously, you can't judge on tone and inflection and maybe the cadence of it because it's not an actual recording. So there is some acting going on there. So you can't really read too much into that. You know, there how how can how strong in their opinions they are? Does this feel like they're kind of making it up as they go? Or is it coming from a place where they know? I guess I guess the final thing would be he hits him with the last question. The investigator hits him with the last question that, oh, by the way, thanks for being a great witness, but we're going to need some, some prints to cancel you out. And again, I would love to have the actual interaction to see if there was a delay and how he spoke and how sure of himself he was. Because this guy sounded pretty convincing in the in the reenactment, but... Is that the moment where he's going, oh, shit, my handprints are all over that car. You know, I put my hand on the car when I was shooting her and now I know they're going to be there. Well, he kind of so, he says that, right? He's like, oh, yeah, he's yeah. kind of setting it up already. I do feel just to play the other side to it, asking about her, you know, that could be two things, right? It could be someone who's just genuinely you know, curious or it could be someone who actually didn't know this person ahead of time and is trying to find out who she is and maybe hoping she's an out-of-state person and out-of-city person because maybe law enforcement won't look into it as much. I don't know. Or I trying know to make that... law enforcement think you have no idea who this person is. Yeah, so no, an how idea could you, and, why would you kill her? And you're just a concerned witness, right? That's my observations. What were, you, what were yours? Well, a few details that Mark Abbott had given uh, Tom Beardsley and Wes Drury didn't add up. You know, and some of them you said. Beardsley picked up on them right away because he'd already been to the crime scene. First of all, the driver's side window of Michelle's car was not rolled down all the way, as Mark had thought it was. It was only rolled about halfway down, and Beardsley didn't feel that Mark, at his size, could have fit his entire upper body through the window in order to lift Michelle, as he had described. Mark had also mentioned that he would not have even known the victim was a girl, if not for the rings on her finger. Yet, as you pointed out, the Missouri Highway Patrol found Michelle's five rings in the center console of her car. They hadn't been on her fingers at the time she was found. Not only that, but Michelle's hands weren't even that visible, considering one of her arms had been pinned underneath her. The other had been hanging down to the floor of the passenger side, not the driver's side, where Mark claimed he had stood. 
Beardsley had also felt that the story about seeing a hitchhiker had been made up by Abbott on the spot, and Abbott's mannerisms and body language were displaying quite a bit of nervousness. He wasn't even able to look either of the men he was talking to in the eye. Mark did agree to head over to the sheriff's office in an hour, so Beardsley called ahead to give them a heads up, and he talked to Brenda Schwitz, telling her he was a bit suspicious of Mark. He was a bit suspicious of the inaccurate details in Mark's story, and he said, listen, I'm going to head back over to the crime scene one more time to check things out, and then I'm going to go to the sheriff's office, um, and then I want you know Mark Abbott to be uh, fingerprinted, but I also want to sit down and interview him again at the sheriff's office in a different setting. Now, Tom Beardsley wanted to go back to the scene because he wanted to find, you know, any evidence of this mysterious hitchhiker, footprints, you know, or signs that um, Mark Abbott had, like, pulled quickly over to the side of the road to the point where the hitchhiker thought he was going to hit him. And obviously, you know, he went to the scene of the the crime and he found nothing to indicate that any hitchhiker had been present. But that doesn't mean that one wasn't. But as soon as he was finished doing that, Beardsley drove the short distance to the sheriff's office, knowing that Mark should be arriving any minute. But when he walked into the sheriff's office, Brenda Schwitz informed him that Mark had already been there for a while. Um, He probably had headed over to the sheriff's office right after Beardsley and Drury had left. And he was currently in a closed door meeting with Sheriff Bill Farrell. Schwitz told Beardsley that Mark had been so upset by what he had seen that he just wanted to get into the sheriff's office to give his report and be done with it. But while at the sheriff's office, Mark Abbott had spoken to both Brenda Schwitz and Bill Farrell, and his story began to change. The first of many changes and modifications that would occur as he was interviewed about what he'd seen that night and what had happened that night over the next several months. Okay, so not knowing anything where this is going couple scenarios, right? You have a scenario where there's something nefarious going on here. These people know each other, small town, and they're filling in the blanks, letting them know what to say, what not to say, what they, where they could maybe alter some things to be more in line with the, the, the evidence at the crime scene. You also could be looking at a situation where we've had this before, not very good at interviewing someone, and maybe the officers not being good at their job are, are speaking too much about the case. The sheriff? The sheriffs, right? Not knowing sheriff that would do that, you think? I think an inexperienced sheriff may be sitting, if he's thinking there's no way this Abbott kid did this, he might be sitting there talking to him like a friend going, yeah, man, you know, not knowing what Beardsley's already thinking. He's sitting in there with someone who Beardsley's looking at as a potential suspect going, yeah, man, it was bad. We had this blood out at the scene. We got this footprint out here and he's talking. Well, that's offensive, sto- Derek. What? That's offensive. The way you make them sound. They're from the South, right? I mean, it's Missouri. No, I guess they don't have an accent then, right? I mean, they probably not do. that bad. They kind of do. <laughs> I don't know I mean, about a little that bit. bad though. Okay, <laughs> you went like full like Louisiana, full country. <laughs> so, uh, so it's one of those things where, and we have had this before too, where you have like a, a newer patrolman, and there's people we call rubbernecking, right? They're out at the behind the tape, mm-hmm. and you got patrolmen over there because someone comes up and says, "Hey, what's going on?" And oh, like, yeah, yeah. We, they're sitting there shooting the shit with them, and then I look over, or someone else looks over and says, "Dude, shut up." Mm-hmm. Shut up. What are you doing? Like, stop. Like, you don't know who's standing with them. Like, and then all of a sudden rumors are all over the town. Right. So yeah. you have had that before. I don't think based on because I know you well, that's where this is going or what we're, we're thinking is going to be the case. But that's my two observations just based on that limited amount of it. But I mean, um, I definitely think Mark Abbott or Matt Abbott, however the fuck. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's definitely given information that he shouldn't have had. 
But like you said, do we know if it was nefarious? Do we know if it was just accidental? If it was just like, oh, I know this kid. I've known this kid forever. I know this kid's family. Like, I'm just shooting the shit. And, you know, him thinking that he's already been interviewed. So it's good. Something crazy that happened. Well, I, I would I would wager, I guess, from what I know about Sheriff Bill Farrell. And this is just from, you know, people who knew him. Um, and I, I think it was Beardsley, his second in command, technically, who was like, uh, so basically Tom Beardsley would be called out to the scene before anybody contacted Sheriff Bill Farrell. And that was because Beardsley said um, Farrell didn't like to be blindsided. He didn't like to be surprised by what he was walking into. He liked to be completely in charge of every situation. So Beardsley would sort of go out almost like a scout, you know, get get the lay of the land. Uh, relay it to to Farrell, and then Farrell would decide, does the situation need me, right? So I kind of would wager a guess that that Bill Farrell knew, and he's the sheriff, Sheriff Bill Farrell knew that um, Mark Abbott had not been officially interviewed yet. Okay. All right. So he, so you're, what you're saying is there might have, knowing that there might have been some malice malice intent behind there maybe no but i'm just saying he wouldn't go in thinking that mark abbott had been completely talked to cleared and and was in no way potentially a suspect but the fact that you're saying the door was closed and stuff doesn't it's not a good look. that's just what it was called i don't know it's not, it's, my, not it's not my words so to kind of put a button on this episode just to recap for me uh, i i obviously have a lot that we've digested but my biggest question leaving this episode and and way down below in the comments, depending on how you feel. But my biggest question is whether it's Abbott's, whether it's Leon or whether it's someone else that we, we don't know about yet uh, as we sit here today. My big question is how does, how does this person get Michelle to pull over? Because what I'm thinking happens just after episode one is obviously for some reason she gets out of the car, the initial attack whether she's pulled from the car or whatever happens out in the woods, she's able to get away from her offender. She runs back to the car. The offender's chasing her from behind and shoots her as she's entering the car. She gets the door shut. He he leans in, shoots her three times succinctly right there, one after another. It's not like he's sitting there for days. Mm -mm. And then he immediately flees the area. Uh, But I... I still don't know how, and we may never know, but I'm, I'm, I guess we'll come up with theories by the end, but how does this offender get Michelle to the side of the road? How does he do that? And maybe you're going to tell me something as we go. I don't know anything about this case, but you know, how does he get her to pull over? That's what I'm really curious about. So we don't really know, but it's funny. Your brain works the same as mine because even early on in this case, that was my question. Um, and I'm going over scenarios, and I know that she was at the exit that she would have taken to go home. So if somebody knew that she would take that exit to go home, they could have been laying in wait for her, uh, maybe posing that they have car trouble. Now, even that being said, and law enforcement has also said this, they don't believe that this was one person. They believe that it was at least two, maybe three involved. Now, they could be completely wrong about this, but that's what they said. And they've also said they believe it was somebody she knew. They don't believe Michelle would have stopped at one o'clock in the morning to help anybody or talk to anybody that she didn't know. And so if she did stop, whether she was flagged down by a friend, whether she thought she saw a friend who was having car trouble, it was someone she was familiar did, with. Did she know the habits? Um, that, that we're, yeah, it's, it's complicated. Okay. Cause it sounds like from that, in, the only reason I bring it up, not to steal thunder for the next episode, cause it sounds like 
in this interview, this reenactment at that point, if he knew he would have been, oh my God, because he would have recognized her. Mm-hmm. Or when he when the detective said her name, been like, oh my God, Michelle, like Yeah, if he was innocent, he would have had no problem saying he recognized her. But if he or was Or at least acknowledge that he has to know that if there's a relationship, a pre existing relationship, detective's gonna figure that out. There's not technically a pre existing relationship. Yeah. However, I feel like we're just scratching the surface here. On we're part one that, so scratching the surface. So I yeah. won't go we won't go too in the weeds, but that's like that's the big question I leave this. I think we kind of have a little bit of an idea that you know, we know that there's an attack that hurt happens outside the car. I don't know if the car was still running when she got pulled out mm-hmm. or she got out voluntarily or when she was running back to the car, she was almost away. She got in, she turns the key, you know, turns the car on and before she can pull away, she shot. I mean, that's also a possibility, but I would assume again, this is, I got so many things running through my head and it, it probably makes this episode hard to follow, but I'm assuming those rings I would love to talk to Leon and know if those rings were on her hands when he was with her, because if she took the rings off before getting out of the car, why would she do that? Why would she do that? Was she trying to help someone that appeared to be having car trouble and didn't want to, it's harder to work with all those rings. Those are some of the questions I have, and maybe we're not going to get those answers, but the rings being in the console when police get there and Abbott saying that they were on her hand when he saw her, that would be a very hard thing to screw up, by the way. That wouldn't okay, be something- so here's what I think. Okay. Um, because I don't wear a lot of rings now, but back in the 90s, when when it was like a big thing to wear like a crap ton of jewelry for absolutely no reason, I did wear a lot of rings. And I know that when I was driving, I would take them off and put them in my pocket or put them in my purse because it, it didn't feel good on the steering wheel. To oh, interesting. Those. Okay. But okay. that's just my theory that I have no proof. Now- Maybe they weren't seen on her hand that night, but maybe somebody who had interacted with her previously knew that she always wore these rings on her finger. And so that's why they that's why he brought the rings, knowing that every time he had seen her prior to this, she'd had the rings on. Um, Now, I was also wondering, maybe she pulls over because it's someone she knows, but then the situation gets dire pretty quickly. Like maybe they try to snatch her and put her in their vehicle, at which point she runs. She's pursued hit on the head down the the embankment where they saw the, the the puddle of blood in the footprint. And she's hit on the head there. She's dragged or carried back, and she's losing blood on the way back. She's dragged over the, um, what is it called, the barricade? The guardrail. The guardrail. And, and you know, yes, because she had dirt and, and grass and stuff on her socks. Yep. Leon said she left his house carrying her shoes in her hand. So when she was in her car and and when she would have maybe gotten out of her car and started running, she wouldn't have had shoes on. So, you know, we, we can kind of piece that together. No idea what happened. The police don't know what happened. But these are just scenarios that do run through your head. Yeah, that is that is that is perplexing. That's a good mystery. That's a really that's an interesting case because it's it seems like it's right there on the tip of your tongue. Like it's just one more piece you need. These are the ones that are frustrating. I'm fa- I can't wait to do part two. If it wasn't so late and you had the script already written, I would do it right now because I have more questions than answers. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is a fascinating case. And I don't want to, we're only in episode one. We focused a lot on the Abbots tonight for, for I think, for justified reasons. But, you know, we're, we're still going to explore other possibilities because I don't know the relationship between them and to think, 
that this person would have to be so close with her, they would have known she would be driving home at that time on that stretch right. of highway. It would have to be someone who would, was pretty spot on and maybe there's a person who fits that mold or maybe it's the Abbots, but how would they know that this woman was going to be driving down the road, this young girl was going to be driving down the road at this time a night? You know, that's a that's a small window, like you said, very I mean, small window yeah. to be sitting there waiting. We wouldn't have talked about the Abbots so much this episode if they hadn't consistently inserted themselves yeah. randomly into this this evening for absolutely zero reason. Yeah, nope. I'm, I'm looking forward to part two. Way down with your comments below. I mean, we we covered a lot in this episode. We really did. And it's mostly, we always say this with part ones of these series, it's more exposition, little backstory, like Stephanie, these are the ones where Stephanie's like, you got to talk more. You know, I need some, <laughs> I need some, I need some back and forth here. And it's like, I'm, I'm digesting this case as much as you guys are at yeah, this point. So by me talking tonight, well, I, I, you know, it's tough to hold your tongue. Cause this one had a lot of, well, I mean, stuff like the interviews where mm -hmm. I can break down that like the detective would, as opposed to what you told me earlier from what was observed, that's always, I enjoy that, you know, like I enjoy doing that, trying to see what you can figure out. But it's always tough being so one dimensional, hearing it over here, blind, not being able to see the person and look them in the eyes and pick up on their mannerisms and try to develop a baseline. That's always, it, it hinders you. But nevertheless, I'm looking forward to it. We'll get to part two. Any final words from you? We can, I, I can keep talking about this one. I'm actually, it's two o'clock and I'm like, I still want to go back and forth with you. Yeah. So, I mean, this this case has me in a chokehold too. And I know tomorrow I'm going to wake up um, and I'm going to start working on part two right away just because it's still fresh in my mind. I have a phone call set up tomorrow uh, where I'm going to get some questions answered and I'm really going to start fleshing this out. Part two is going to be really good. So I'm just focused on now getting into bed so I can get, I don't know, maybe four or five hours of sleep. <laughs> before waking up and, and pulling my, my I think I might stay in bed tomorrow and work from my bed with my laptop. Mm. But I'm gonna I'm gonna work on it all day. So until my dentist appointment, which is at three. <laughs> you know what else you could have? I'm sorry, I'm gonna keep going. You could have a situation too where the offender or offenders see Michelle driving home mm -hmm. and they do something while driving on the side of her, or, you know, flag her down to pull over like, hey, we need you. And that's, she pulls over. She doesn't get out of her car. They just walk right, they run up to the car frantically and they catch her off guard. Maybe they're not anticipating her arrival, but because they cross paths while going in the same direction, that's when they decide, oh, look at this cute girl over here. Let's, they beep at her a couple of times and they conjure up something really quick where they get her to veer off the road. Or even if you want to be more aggressive, they kind of cut her off. Yeah, but what's the motive to shoot her three times and kill her? I, th I think the motive is they get her over to the side of the road. They want to do something with her. She fights back. She starts to flee the area. They know what's going to happen. Now they have to they have to remove that witness. They have to remove that person who's going but to die. But if she doesn't out. know who they are. She's seen their faces. So? She's from the community. She's probably She probably knew who they were, even if she didn't know them personally. Hmm. You don't think she's ever crossed paths with the Abbots that work at Store 24? I don't know. Store 24. <laughs> so it's called, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, they could, and even like she could put Potus them out in a lineup, you know, mm -hmm. she could pick them out in a lineup if they brought her in. So yeah. they can't let her go. And I think it's something in that moment where the situation but I mean, gets out of hand. It's the 90s. They haven't done anything to her yet. They could just be like, we don't know what she's talking about. She was drunk. She was crazy. I mean, didn't he even say something in the interview? Like, is she right in the head? Like, why would he even say that? I don't know. 
You I'm know, just trying so. to think of how you get this young girl to pull over to the side of the road. I just don't see why like a, a potential attack that doesn't like culminate in an actual attack would have them thinking it was dire enough. Because it's not even like, what are you going to do? Get arrested? Spend a night in jail? Like there's no, the, you, you can't prove you did anything. You can say she just, she's crazy. Okay. She was flirting with us. We tried to kiss her. She freaked out, slapped us. And then ran away. Like, we don't know what's wrong with her. Nothing happened at that point. So, like, what is the what is the reason to shoot her three times like that? I don't know that, but I don't. I don't know it. But what if what if there's a more aggressive action to get her to pull over? They cut her off or whatever it is. And that's when they cut her off and she can't go anywhere. Instead of being pulled out of the car, that's when she runs. Right. Her car is blocked. They swerve in front of her. They get her to swerve off the road. She gets out of the car to try to run away from them, they chase her down, drag her back to the car. But then the question goes back to what you just said, which is why are they doing this in the first place? What is the motive? Like, what is the reasoning behind you choosing this poor girl to do this in the, I don't know what that would be, but that's also a potential where she, for some reason, can't go anywhere. They're able to block her off and she gets out of the car to run on foot and they chase after her. Mm -hmm. I don't know. know. Damn, my brain right now. I'm in, I'm in a pretzel. Okay, I got to go. I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for this, Stephanie. Appreciate you. Um, you know, No final words, right? Because I kept us going. Yeah, we're good. All right. We appreciate you guys being here. Uh, leave your comments down below. There's a lot to cover here. If there was anything we screwed up or anything, I know we were talking about GSR and all this other stuff. By all means, correct us. Wait on with your comments below. We will be back next week. Please like, comment, subscribe. We will see you soon. Be safe out there. Have a good night. Bye. Bye.